Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, even though I'm probably on my way back from Hot Springs from picking up our new office lease up there uh, for our new uh, global headquarters high atop the ridge line of Hot Springs Village. Um, but uh, today is Friday. It's Friday, March 25th, 2011, at least for you. It's actually Tuesday for me when I'm recording this. But that means that today's show is a call-in Friday. That means this show is all about you. It's your questions and your comments and your commentary that you call in to 866-65-THINK. Yes, if you want to be on the show, pick up your phone, mash some numbers. They are 866-65-THINK. Make your question or your commentary quick, direct, and to the point. You get about two minutes to do that. Uh, that's really plenty of time. And uh, do a call in the uh, format that any of these people you hear today do, and you're probably likely to hear yourself on the air within about two weeks is where I'm running my backlog right now, which is really good. I expect as call volumes increase, that'll probably increase back to the other side eventually. But, hey, you know what? We'll do what we can to, uh, to keep uh, the, the calls rocking right along. Once again, though, in this batch of screening, I had people that were calling me either running a weed eater or on the back of a ninja motorcycle or something like that. Um, it really helps if you call from a quiet area, and uh, you know that that would go a long way toward getting you on the air. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take care of our uh, housekeeping and our sponsors, and then we'll go ahead and start taking your calls today. Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. You know, I, I say a lot about having precious metal in your portfolio, specifically gold and silver. I also think you should add copper jacketed lead to that investment portfolio in the form of having some ammo stored. I want you to look at any gun that you own right now. If you can't look at it, see it in your mind. Think about it sitting in that gun safe or if you have it tucked away under your bed for self-defense or whatever it is. Whether it's a handgun, a long gun, doesn't matter what kind of gun it is. Without ammunition, it's a very expensive club. And that's all that it is, is an expensive club. So you got to have ammo for it. Remember to get some training as well. But for your ammo needs, check out BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. I love Sawtooth because they, they give me all the stuff that I possibly could want to be tactical. Uh, Sawtooth Tactical has great stuff, everything from uh, Maxpedition bags to Magpul magazines and everything else in between. Check out Sawtooth Tactical, and I'll tell you what, you are going to get first-class customer service at Sawtooth every single time, and when you order, if you tell them that you found them on TSP, you're likely to find a little goodie or two tucked in with your order, because, well, they're just that kind of folks. They like to reward loyalty. And uh, they really have told me they enjoy dealing with this audience. Remember, the best way to find all of our sponsors and connect with us by social media and other outlets is to go to the survivalpodcast.com. You'll find links in the two right-hand margins. And, of course, you'll find our sponsors all listed in the right-hand margin. Um, last but not least, make sure you do connect with us with Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, things like that. That's all there on the site. And remember, if you think this show's worth $0.20 cents an episode, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive 
exclusive content available only to members. You get some great discounts, and uh, you get a lot of other really great stuff, like well over a hundred dollars worth of eBooks completely free for instant download the day you become a member. And with that, we've wrapped up the housekeeping. Three minutes twenty, three minutes and forty seconds record time, I think. So let's go ahead and give all of the time we can for your calls today. Let's go ahead and take that first call. Hey, Jack. Uh, it's Woody from Colorado, Denver metro area, Woody Borghini on the forum. I've been listening to the podcast for over a year, um, since another day, another dollar, but have only just recently joined the forum. I have to share my appreciation for you and your show. This stuff is definitely crucial these days. Um, I also appreciate your responses to my emails. In the past, it makes a world of difference to your listeners to know that you actually care and want to help and connect and that you're not too important to give a response. That's definitely important. Now, my question slash comment is as follows. I like your succinct description of the five elements for survival, food, water, shelter, energy, security, but I think too often glossed over by survivalists, maybe for fear of being perceived as paranoid, is breathable air. I would like to know more about dust masks, smoke hoods, even gas masks, and maybe even about how to improve the quality of air I breathe every day. Now, some people must think I'm crazy floral hat guy. I'm not. Think about uh, fire in the house, carbon monoxide poisoning in the house. What about a chemical plant explosion? There are consumer-level oxygen tanks that I've recently seen. What about a first response? like a shock situation that the victim could benefit from oxygen. Um, I just think we could all benefit from more discussion about air. It definitely falls into the first level of the rule of threes. You probably can't go three minutes without it. I think with all we do to prepare and all we consider, nothing should be taken for granted, least of all air. Anyway, that's all. Thanks for the consideration, and thanks for the great show. Well, um, I'll tell you what, I, I don't think you're crazy. I don't think you're a tin hat nutter or anything like that at all. It is one of the primary survival needs. I think the reason it's glossed over is uh, when you say air as a survival need, well, you know, there's a health aspect and there's a contamination aspect to look at. And we'll talk about that in a second. But when it comes right down to if you just don't have it, you're dead. And to be in a situation where you don't have air, it means you're locked in an airtight container or the atmosphere has evaporated. And, and in those types of instances, you don't really need to understand that you need air. You either need to find air or you're dead. So it's not something we spend a lot of time on as survivalists. I do think a show on dealing with contaminated air and in dealing with environmental hazards that are airborne is a great idea, and it would maybe we'll call that show, you know, episode whatever when I get to it. It's going to take some research and putting some stuff together for you. Maybe we'll call it, you know, uh, the breath of life or something like that for a title, because it is. It's critical and core to our survival needs. So I, I'm completely in sync with you there. All I can tell you is that like what we include in our kits are surgical grade masks. So that if there's ever, you know, a, a real pandemic, because that honestly is something that I worry about, um, we have an ability to, uh, to, to give us some, ourselves some limited protection from that until we're able to get out of an area of heightened risk. And, and that's pretty much all we've done. The gas mask thing 
is something that I have no good reason for not including gas masks in our preps other than there's so many things that I think are more likely to be necessary than a gas mask that I haven't done it. Um, they are very effective. Uh, if you're ever in the military, you'll know how effective a gas mask is because they'll put one on you and they'll send you into a uh, chamber full of uh, tear gas, uh, CS gas actually to be exact, and uh, they'll let you realize that you smell, taste, and feel nothing, and then they'll make you take your mask off and you'll find out how valuable that thing really is. So gas masks, I, I wouldn't fault anybody for including that in your preps. If we start going to levels of like chemical suits and things like that, You know, unless you live somewhere with a heightened risk, I just think that when I look at probability of disaster, anytime I'm going to make an investment in something, I'm going to look at what's the most probable thing to happen and what do I need to add to my preps next. And in almost every instance, it's going to be something other than a chemical suit. Um, as far as air that we breathe every day, I mean, air filters in the home are fine. I don't think they are nearly as effective as advertised. Um, you know, and you still got to leave the house and walk outside. I think that one of the big things that we need to focus on with air is how much of it we breathe. And I think many of us breathe way too little air. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the average person's lung capacity versus um, how much capacity they utilize, there's a big delta there. And I think one way that we can definitely improve our health, and every you know alternative health practitioner in the world would probably agree with this, the good and the bad and the ugly out of that world, because there's some great ones and there's some complete nutters. But from nutter to a solid uh, practitioner, I bet you everybody would agree with breathing is a key to health. And uh, just taking certain amounts of time every day to get some deep breathing done and doing that in a clean environment is probably a good thing. But if you want to get me you know, like into the specifics of uh, what type of gear to use for, for contaminated environments and all, that's going to take some research because honestly, and I might be wrong about this. I mean, always remember, this shows my opinion. And based on my needs personally, and you, I say take my information and put it together with all the other information you have and build a plan for your needs. But for my needs personally, I'm not really worried about, you know, uh, chemical warfare. That's not, that's not my big concern. And I don't think that most people that travel in cities where it's likely to happen at some point, um, can really be fully equipped for it on a, I mean, the stuff's bulky. And, uh, gas mask is one thing. But one thing I think people need to realize about uh, chemical warfare is a gas mask is only one piece of a protective measure. Um, a lot of the stuff that's out there is just as likely to kill you or damage you by touching your skin uh, and, and being absorbed through the skin. And uh, so, I mean, there's what's called a, a mop gear or mission-oriented protective posture in the military, and it's an entire suit with boots and gloves and gas masks, and there's mop levels, uh, level one, level two, level three, level four. And um, carrying a gear to actually be at that level of protection, I just don't see it as very practical. I think that space would be better utilized for gear you're more likely to use. But, again, it's a valid point. It's a valid question. And definitely in environments where we have radioactivity exposure, uh, having some level of way to uh, filter through the air is going to be beneficial and reduce uh, exposure to radioactive particles. Uh, definitely in a pandemic environment, definitely, definitely in a high death environment where there's a lot of death. If we ever end up with, you know, a tsunami or something, when you've got, you know, we're all focused on the nuclear activity over there, but you got a shoreline where a thousand dead bodies wash up. There's a lot of things that can make you sick there. 
So it's a good question. It's a good point. I'll do more and speak more on it in the future. And by the way, thank you so much for your kind words at the beginning. I hope more people follow your example and uh, do join the forum as well. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. This is John in West Virginia. Uh, got a little question for you. Now, if the shit does hit the fan, can we expect a goodbye survival podcast? That way we'd at least be able to hear you one last time. Thanks a lot, man. Well, John, there's there's two ways that could happen. There could be a shit hit the fan that would shut down the show. And and I, I think you mean the first kind that most people would think of means the shit has hit the fan for everybody and we've had a uh, a global catastrophe that takes away the ability for people to use, including for me to use the internet to distribute my message for something to go on to where I just can't go on the air. Maybe even you could listen, but I can't do it because it's a local disaster that's taken us out. And uh, in that case, it would be I'd be off the air until I got back on the air. If it's global, I'd be off the air until society got back together enough to get back on the air. I'd be back on the air, trust me. Um, so unless it was a global catastrophe, shut us down for all eternity. Uh, no more internet, no more electricity, and I and I didn't survive, and I survived, you know, didn't survive it, or I survived it, and we're all living like uh, it's Robin Hood days again. Unless that happens, the last episode will be a retirement episode. So I guess there's three ways this could happen. And a retirement episode for me, I don't know when it is, but it's way, 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 way down the train here uh, because I actually consider myself right now partially retired. And though I probably work as many hours as most people work in a week, I work about probably 30% of what I worked when I worked in the, the business world now. So for me, I'm, I'm moving at a low speed now, and I'm very, very content and very happy with it. So that only leaves one other type of shit hitting the fan that would take me out and require a, a last show, and that would be the most probable one for me, just like the most probable one for everybody else is the same. We don't like to think about it, getting killed. Uh, and that could be one of my little adventure things where I'm climbing a rock face or jumping out of an airplane. Or uh, it could be because I get hit, you know, basically get hit by a, a ten-wheeler while I'm driving my Jetta down the highway or something like that. I mean, we're all mortal and we all can die. And um, I don't know. I've actually kicked around the idea of, of, of doing a podcast that's set somewhere and someone knows how to get it and turn it on. If I ever, if that ever did happen to me, a farewell. Um, there's something eerie about writing your own farewell, though. Uh, and I don't know that I'm ready to do that yet. I, I, you know, you've all heard of people that wrote their own obituary and then next week died. And uh, maybe it's because uh, maybe it's because they knew on some level. And I don't know yet, so I guess I'm not ready to do that yet. I, I just kind of a bad luck voodoo there. Um, but I would hope that if something did happen to me, that the uh, 632 episodes uh, plus uh, by that time, because hopefully it won't be tomorrow morning, um, would stick around. And that uh, my voice would continue to speak to people for a long time to come. And I'd actually look to you guys to continue to uh, to spread the message and for hopefully someone else to step up and, and grab the torch and carry it and go forward. But uh, if it was coming, if it was coming and I knew it was either me personally or us at large, uh, whether it was global in nature or, you know, I was diagnosed with something, when I knew I was going on the air for the last time or possibly the last time, 
I, I, I'm pretty sure there would be some special things I'd have to say to all of you guys, but hopefully that won't ever happen. So, John, not only did you just ask one of the more sombering questions of all time on TSP, but because it's you and you have that just killer accent, uh, you're going to be one of the only people that's ever been on one of these call-in shows to have two calls in a row because John called right back with another question. So let's hear from John again. Hey, Jack, this is John again. I just I had a revelation here a second ago after my daughter almost had to do her homework with a carpentry pencil is the thing that I think a person needs to have a long-term storage of ink pens, pencils, and paper, because you never know when that stuff's going to come in handy. Thanks a lot. Well, I think it's a good tip, honestly. I think that having writing implements and things to write on is a good part of your preps, and it's something we should all do. Um, we've become so addicted to computers and things like that that uh, that it becomes, you know, like every once in a while I'll be on the phone with somebody and they like want to give me a phone number or something like that, and uh, they're like, well, if you got a pencil or a pen, you can write this down. And we do have stuff put away, like in a box and all, but a lot of times just laying around the house, I don't have a pen anywhere. i got these uh, dry erase markers I use for my whiteboard in my office, and I'll have to go back to my computer and I'll have to enter this stuff on a computer, and that's just one example of that. But this also makes me think of something kind of funny, and I'll probably never do as good a job with it as a comedian did. And I'd love to give credit for this. So if anybody knows who, this, who did this bit, let me know in the comments section today. I'd like to get it on, uh, find it on YouTube or something, but with what I know about it, I couldn't find anything on it. But it's this comedian, and it's I, I want to say it might be Ellen DeGeneres, but it could be somebody totally the opposite. But the comedian's talking and basically says, you know, and I was thinking about, you know, when you die, do you get do you get all your stuff back? You know, like when you die, they're like, oh, here's two sets of car keys, that you, you know, and uh, here's this and here's that. And then, then whoever it was is like, you know, and all of a sudden, here is uh, 4,327 uh, pencils and 63,211 pens, right? They seem to be the thing uh, that we lose the most. So thanks, John, for making me think of death twice today. Um, <laughs> but actually, no, seriously, I do think that's a good thing, and it's probably something a lot of people would overlook, uh, is having stuff like that. And uh, You know, if your uh, daughter did have to do her homework with a carpenter's pencil, it wouldn't be that bad a thing. I, I've also had this other little idea, just to, to show how things have changed. And a carpenter's pencil might be something I would take and do this with uh, as maybe a more modest thing still around. Uh, but I've been thinking about just getting a video camera and going into it like any small town or any you know big town for that matter, and just look for you know twenty somethings and down walking by and handing them an object and videoing the response and basically saying, "Do you know what this is?" And the one I want to do it with first, but i got to find one because I can't find one. For all those of you that are my age and older, remember when we had records? Remember records? You put them on with a needle, and they played music, and they spun in a circle. And there were two kinds. There were LPs, and there were 45s. And 45s were the little ones, and uh, they, uh, they, spun, they had to spin faster because they were a smaller track. And the radio, or the, the record player... Uh, had a little dimple thing that the hole in the LP went on, but the 45 had a great big hole in it. And then you had to turn this little adapter on some turntables that would come up to put that, that record on there, that 45 record on there, the small single they called them. But um, some record players didn't have one of those little pop-up thingamajobs. So somebody made up another little pop-up, th a little thingamabob. They're yellow, and they look like a little disc, like something you put in a, like a, a toy gun and shoot. 
and they're yellow and they kind of got an opening and a little hole in the middle and they snapped in the middle of that record. I'd love to get, I know this doesn't sound like a survival topic, but I do, I do think it would show the evolution of society because in 1985 even, I think if you would have walked around with those things and handed them to anybody from a little kid to an adult, they would have been able to tell you what it is. I'd love to get one of those today and take it out and ask some 20-year-old kids, do you know what this object is? Fun thing to do because it's a Friday. Um, post in the uh, comment section for my little project, if I ever do it, some other objects that you think would be cool to take around and hand to people uh, that are of, let's say, Generation Y and the Internet Native uh, generation and say, do you know what this is? Uh, just a fun thing to add in there on a Friday. John, thanks for your calls, man, even though I gave you a hard time. And uh, let's go ahead and take another call from another listener. Hey, Jack, this is Ryan from Wisconsin. I uh, just got a question about silver. My brother-in-law is getting really big into silver and buying it up like crazy. And he explained to me that J.P. Morgan Chase is buying or short-selling silver, and he explained to me that once they're found out, that silver will skyrocket. I uh, just want to know if that's true and what you think about it, so... Uh, keep up the good work, and thanks for the show. All right, bye. Well, this is one of those things that's not false, and it's not true either, and it's being used to sucker a lot of people into spending a lot of money on silver. And that's really what it's being used for right now. J.P. Morgan, along with a lot of other big-time uh, traders, do hold right now very significant what are called short positions in the silver market. And as those positions begin to expire, they either have to cover them or let them go. Now, as far as being found out, um, that statement alone shows me that, uh, you, I think you said it was your brother, your cousin, whatever, uh, is not really very well informed. Because does he think he's the only one that knows? I mean, this is old news. This has been going on for a year. Max Kaiser's been on Alex Jones with this and all. And Max Kaiser's plan was, well, if every American just buys one ounce of silver, we'll bankrupt J.P. Morgan. And, yeah, that went over like a lead balloon. Um, but there are, there is significant short selling in the silver market right now. Some of it, I believe, is intentional to try to deflate the price of silver. Some of it is expected. When you have any commodity make a run like silver's made, and, I mean, we're talking about a big run. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, silver was trading around 12 bucks, and now it, it's bouncing between about 32 and 36, right, uh, back and forth. So that's a big run, that's a big run up. So it's logical when silver makes a run like that, or when coffee makes a run like that, or when soybeans makes a run like that, or anybody, any commodity makes a run like that, that many traders will come in and take a short position. It's important that we understand what a short is. I, I imagine if you asked your brother here, said, hey man, what's a short sell? What's a short position? He probably wouldn't know. A short position basically is an option for me to buy the commodity in the future for less than it sells today. So if I bought a short position in silver today, I might buy an option over the next year, so a one-year contract on a certain number of ounces of silver, where I have a right to buy silver for, let's say, $26. Now you say, why would I do such a thing? Well, the reason I would do it is if I actually believe silver is going to fall to or below that, that, that spot price, that $26 price, I stand to make a ton of money by a couple ways. One, by selling the option, or two, by exercising the option and buying. So let's say I, I bought the option to uh, control 10,000 ounces of silver. 
with a spot price of $28, a little more realistic right now. And silver's trading at, I don't even know what it's at today. I didn't check, but it could be $32, it could be $34. I'd say it's $34. What I'm betting on is that in the term of that option, whether it's a year, two years, five years, 90 days, it could be anything I want, as long as it's a seller of it, I believe silver's going to come down from $34 below that $28. If it went down to $24, I have a right to sell, not buy, but sell. That's what a, a short is, a right to sell at $28. And the guy on the other end has to buy. So I could buy this these options dirt cheap because nothing actually trades hands, right? It's a naked short, so to speak. I write the guy a check for maybe a thousand bucks, maybe a hundred bucks, depends on how big the contract is. He gets the money and if the option expires and I don't exercise it, he just keeps it. Right? That's the short position that these guys are taking right here. If the silver falls to twenty four the price value of that option goes way way up. Now, I could sell that option on the market as a commodity, or I can exercise my right with that option. So I can go to the open market, I can buy 20, you know, uh, silver at 24 an ounce, and I can turn around and make somebody else pay me 28 for it. That's how short position works. Now, the more short positions there are, the more speculation there is on a downward trend. So this represses the price. So as these options expire and they fail, there'll be some upward pressure on silver if that in fact happens. If silver falls, then there'll be tons of profit taking by these people holding the options. To think that you can really suppress the price doing this is kind of stupid. It doesn't mean that J.P. Morgan hasn't tried to do so. There's more at play here because silver is one of the indicators of the weakness of the dollar, as is gold. So there's a strong desire in the investment community to repress things like silver and gold right now, especially if they've already made their money. See, the time when options traders get dangerous is when they've done what's called a call option on the way up. So they've they've done the exact same thing. They bought a right to uh, to buy instead of sell silver for let's say twenty four dollars when silver's trading at ten because they can buy the option for a fraction of the cost of the actual metal. And then during the term of the option, let's say silver goes up to thirty four dollars where it is now, they can go in the market buy at at twenty four and turn around and sell at thirty four. The person that wrote the, the call option has to sell to them. At the, at the repressed price. They have to do it. Everything gets really murky and dirty when, when people can't cover their puts and calls. But there's, uh, some of my financial shows are probably better to get deeper into that. But, so the answer is, when they get found out, will silver skyrocket? No. Silver may or may not go up, but the, the belief that this short positioning has the effect on it that people like Max Kaiser are saying it does is, is, is foolish. It just is. I'm not saying there's no effect. I'm not saying that, you know, as some of these positions expire, you might not see another 20% out of silver. But don't think that, you know, because here's, here's what I'm worried about. I've been hearing from people that think that once this thing kind of comes apart, uh, silver is going to go up to like three or $400 an ounce. And uh, I don't see that in any near anything close to the short term. I have a very good friend who I talked to about two years ago when this was all starting, by the way, who was saying, I'm just buying 10-ounce bars of silver. I'm buying three or four of them a month, and uh, one day I'm just going to be able to take a couple of them bars out and buy a house with it. And uh, I'm all for investing in precious metals. 
I'm much stronger on silver than gold. I always have been since the show started. But I don't want you to make foolish decisions over um, what really comes out to be a marketing blurb. Because that's what this has turned into is a marketing blurb. It's not that there's nothing behind it. It's that the people that are using it and trumping it up are more concerned with selling you silver than what your potential gains really are. And again, I'll ask this question whenever anybody's selling precious metals that starts to hype something. If my money's so worthless and your silver's so valuable, why don't you just hang on to your silver? Why do you want my cash? All right, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jake calling from uh, the beautiful country of Turkey. Just started listening to your podcast here, and I'm really enjoying it, but a little overwhelmed here when I see that there's 619, art- 619 uh, episodes. And I'm wondering, you got a top 10 list or a, you know some kind of a – a list of your top episodes or your, you know, what what are the podcasts you'd recommend somebody listening to if they want to, you know, get caught up with the most important content from the past and then start listening regularly. I'd uh, love, love to hear your answer on the air, and just thanks for what you're doing. I really am inspired by your podcast and uh, was drawn in first by the Gary Vaynerchuk uh, interview and have, have been addicted ever since. Thanks for your work, and have a good one. Well, there is a welcome center. I believe we have five of of the all-time listener favorite shows listed there, and I should probably go through and beef that up to about 20. And uh, not even just based on favorite shows, but cover all angles, cover cover things like the major cracks in the economy, uh, economic lessons, the debt show, um, you know, basic permaculture primer show. And beef that up. So that's a good suggestion. I think that I'll do it. Um, what we could do, folks, if you wanted to, is in today's show notes, if there's any particular show that you really think a new person should hear, and you might want to check the Welcome Center first, right, and see if uh, see if it's already listed in there. But any show that you can remember that like really made an impact on you and really opened your eyes to something, suggest it. And uh, when I get back in next week, I'll try to uh, beef up that Welcome Center. But uh, also, thank you for becoming a new listener to the show. I, I really appreciate that. And remember always, like, it's really about you and what you want. So anybody, even longtime listeners, you guys can benefit from things like the tags. Uh, there's a whole tag cloud on the site. If you scroll down and you look in the center, you'll see a whole bunch of words. Some are big and some are little, and they're all links. If you click on any one of those words, it'll pull up any show that's had that tag associated with it, and you can use the search box. So it's really more about what's most important to you and your initial walk with preparedness and looking up the subjects that we've covered in the past. Uh, I think those would be helpful. And you can also do things like if you if you use the tag uh, listener listener calls and listener questions, you can find all the all the shows that are email shows or all the shows that are call in shows. And those are other ways to kind of get maybe a more uh, holistic uh, view of the show. So thanks for that good suggestion. Something I've needed to do for a long time, and I know I've needed to do it. Uh, I'll get cracking with that. But again, audience, I can use your help. Any of the shows you think belong in that welcome center, please let me know. And again. For, th- for things like this and anything that's that's uh, you know kind of uh, feedback on the show uh, that are you know episode specific or topic specific, uh, don't email me. Post them in the blog. Not that I don't want to read your email, but you know let's let everybody partake in the discussion here. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi Jack, this is Jeff from St. Louis, uh, lost airplane. I got a little taste of something you mentioned several times on the podcast. Is the treatment that you get or survivalists or preppers get from the mainstream media calling us crazy, tinfoil hat and all that. 
I called in a radio show, and they were asking for people to call in and ask, you know, if they prepare for disasters like that earthquake over in Japan. And I said, I called in, they got me on the air, and I said, yeah, we, we, we prepare for different, you know, anything might go wrong. We've got food and water and other things, probably about two or three months' worth of food and other things stored. And the guys seemed interested in everything. Where do you keep it? Basement, a couple different places. And he says, uh, well, what are you preparing for? A man-made disaster, a natural disaster, what? I said, either. I said, or both. He said, both? I said, yeah, how about a, how about a natural disaster? And then the typical reaction from people that aren't prepared, which is panic and rioting and looting and, and stealing and killing, I said, and that would be the man-made disaster on top of the natural disaster. Thanks a lot for your call. Oh, thanks, thanks, thanks. And he hangs up on me. And then he and his uh, cohort proceeded to poke fun at me and other people that store food and, and do things like this for about the next, you know, 90 seconds. And then he he turns around, complete turnaround, and goes, you know, we're getting a lot of text messages on the subject. It seems like a lot of people are storing food and water. Here's one that stores an alternative electric. And uh, so I guess there's hope in the midst of their stupidity. I just wanted to let you know I got the same treatment you talked about. Doesn't doesn't discourage me in the least. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later. Bye. You know, this really bugged me at first when I first started hearing it. And, um, you know, and the more I got involved with TSP and the more I grew the show and the more contact I had with the outside world about it and people contacting me from the media and things like that, the more I became in touch with how bad it really gets at times. And initially I was very, very frustrated with it. And I felt that it was due to ignorance of the threats. And that's what I thought it was. These people are idiots. They don't understand that these threats are out there. And I called them sheeple. And I still call them sheeple because they do whatever the TV or the nice elected official tells them to. So they are sheeple. And if that offends anybody tough, I've had several people say, don't call them sheeple. That makes them upset. Well, sometimes you need to be upset. But what I have learned to become a little bit more tolerant with is the reasoning behind what you've experienced there are very actions about people calling in and maybe we should look at this and stuff like that after they kind of mocked you demonstrates the fact that they know. They know that the dangers are real. They know that storing things is is a valid practice in life. They know that living like your grandparents is smarter than living like most people do in the 21st century. Um, but they're not comfortable with that. Realization. It's just like uh, the last call-in show I did, or last it was the email show I did, where the guy said, you know, my wife doesn't want me to carry a gun. Uh, what should I do? And I said, carry the damn gun anyway. By the way, I will not apologize for that advice. Um, I don't really think it's that she was afraid of him with the gun or the gun itself. She was afraid of accepting the fact that you might need the gun. See, I think that the one thing that the sheep hate even more than the sheep dog, or the sheep, or the sheep hate more than the wolf is the sheepdog. See, the sheepdog is a reminder to the sheep that there's a wolf out there. The sheepdog looks a lot more like the wolf than he does like the sheep. He looks dangerous, and he says to the sheep, you have to stay here with your herd so I can protect you. And he nips at the sheep's heels if the sheep strays too far. And he'll never hurt the sheep. Good sheepdog will protect that, give his life to protect the sheep, but the sheep resent the sheepdog. And... I think that's a lot of what's going on with preppers. Not that we're so much the sheepdog the way uh, that a law enforcement officer or a uh, soldier is, even though many of us are law enforcement officers and soldiers um, and, and prior service soldiers such as myself. I think that um, 
It's more just about the fact that we remind them of the danger and we make them feel how exposed they are. Because all of a sudden, if you're going to talk about prepping and, and being smart, the logical person knows, well, debt's going to come into this too. And, and this credit card lifestyle I'm living is not right. And all of a sudden, everything about their way of living starts to feel wrong. And when you start to feel that way, the easiest thing to do is turn around and mock the other person. It's no different than Dave Ramsey when he talks to people and says, you know, when you started doing this debt elimination program and, and uh, you started living on rice and beans and beans and rice and sold your expensive car and decided to jalo- drive a jalopy for two years, did anybody make fun of you? And pretty much they all say, well, yes, yeah, somebody did. Well, it's because they don't want to do it. Now, when you live the lifestyle of a prepper for three, four, five years, and you get out of debt, and you build up your reserves, and you get to a point where you have a very stress-free life, they'll envy the lifestyle, and they'll say, it must be nice, and other things like that, but they're not willing to do the work, and when people are not willing to do the work, well, they mock the people that are. You know, when I was when I was a little kid and playing football, uh, before it was, you know, before you're in high school where it's cool, but when you're playing football as a little kid, and you're out doing push-ups and all, and you're at a place where the other kids can see you, and you're being treated like a little military unit, well, the other kids mock that. Well, why? Because they don't want to do the work. They don't want to try to be more than they already are. They're comfortable in their sloth and their apathy. And I think that's where most people are today. So that might sound harsh, but I'm actually being a lot more tolerant. I, at least I understand why the person has apathy and, and slothfulness. Because they've been conditioned to live life in a certain way. And what I want for every person that listens to this show is for you to break that at least a little bit. Because as soon as you break it a little bit, it's like being in a pitch black room and one little pinhole of light comes into that room. I can put you in a pitch dark room and I can put a literally a pinhole in the ceiling. And that light will come through almost blinding at first. And it'll be hard to look at. It'll hurt your eyes. You've been in the dark for too long. But once you look at it and your eyes begin to adjust to it, you'll start going, that looks pretty good. And at the point that you see the pinhole, nothing short of a steel vault will keep you from digging through the wall or the roof or the floor to get the hell out into the light. So that's all I want from anybody that ever, you know, starts to walk preparedness is for them to see one sliver of the light that is freedom and liberty. And I believe once you do that, you'll be willing to stop mocking and start doing. So I think that's why you dealt with that. I think that's more what we're dealing with. Uh, than just simple people that are too stupid to understand the world's a dangerous place. What we're actually dealing with are people that can't accept that the world's a dangerous place based on the way they've been living for so long. Let's go ahead and take another call. That was a great one. Hi, Jack. This is Matt up in Michigan. Just want to say thanks again for your show. I've really been enjoying the interviews you've been doing lately. Just finished the uh, episode on aquaponics, which just raised a couple questions for me. Um, I was wondering about our ability to understand the nutrient needs of the plant's so specifically that we can actually provide them through aquaponics, sort of like Paul Whedon talks about um, sort of the arrogance of the system that we can sort of, you know, feed cows, you know, in a stall as opposed to letting them free graze. I'm just wondering how managing plants in a closed system like aquaponics is different than that. I'm not necessarily dogging it. I just, 
I would like to hear your thoughts on the difference. And I wonder if there have been any studies done to show the nutrient comparison between uh, soil-grown plants and aquaponic-grown plants uh, and see if there's uh, any, any nutritional benefit to the aquaponic system. Love the show. Uh, be interested to hear what you say. Thanks. Well, I, I can't say I know, and I, I think anybody that says that they know for a fact that uh, a plant grown in an aquaponic system is just as uh, nutritionally, nutritiously viable uh, as one grown in a, a conventional system is, uh, is foolish. So I can't tell you that I know that it's the equivalent. What I can tell you is I have every reason in the world to believe that it's, it's better than most of the produce you'll ever get your hands on. And I think that, number one, what we can do is we can look at the fact that aquaponics uh, practitioners generally don't grow genetically modified plants or uh, or anything that's out of the, the, the usual, and they don't use any type of uh, chemical fertilizers or anything like that because they can't because it'll kill their fish. They don't use any insecticides. So the plant has to get by with a minimal amount of inputs. All it gets is what comes from the fish waste and the water. And that's all that it gets. And in spite of that, when we look at aquaponically grown produce, it grows faster and has higher yields per plant uh, than anything else out there. So it yields greater. So the plant's performance tells me that while it might not get every single thing it does planted in the dirt, it gets everything it knows to grow, flourish, reproduce. The seed saved is valid seed. So Everything from the empirical evidence that we observe tells us that we have very nutritious food. The other thing is we can look at, and we don't, do we know every single thing about how a plant grows? No. And I don't care if you're a botanist that studied one plant for a hundred years, because you're the oldest man on the civilization, you're 120 years old, and you know every cell structure of that plant. We still don't understand everything about how a plant grows. We can't. Because if we did, we'd be able to make plants, we'd be able to create life. So in any living being, there's a life force. And science has never been able to take inert matter and create life. And I don't think they ever will. They've even created synthetic life, they want to call it that, in the form of creating a bacterium or a virus. But they've done it starting out with the building blocks from other life. So they use a yeast cell as a building block. Well, they're cheating now, right? So there's a force Right, and you know, people who are Star Wars fans would be familiar with that use of that term, but it doesn't have to be that. There is a force, a life force in all living creatures. If you are alive and I cut you with a knife, and I don't give you any antibiotics at all, I don't give you any kind of uh, help. We just leave that cut on your arm, assuming it's not so deep that it does excessive structural damage. It's a, a basic surface cut on your arm, on your forearm. It'll heal. It'll heal, and it'll heal just fine uh, for the average person with no medical treatment whatsoever. Now, if I bandage it, if I treat it, prevent infection, it might heal faster. It might heal with less scarring, but one way or another, a living person's arm will heal. If you're dead, I mean D-E-A all the way dead, not on life support, but dead, and you can't come back and you're done and your life force is gone, and I put you on a mechanical apparatus that breathes for you, Okay, it beats your heart, makes your blood flow, and does all that stuff, but you're dead. I'm talking you were a corpse in the morgue dead. All right, just to be clear on this, because I said it before and people were confused by it, and I cut your arm, I can stitch the, the cut closed. 
I can put every medication in the world in your body. I can do anything I want. That cut will never heal. So there's going to def. And why do I bring that up with with this plant question? Because the, there there is a valid point you've made. There's no possible way that we can understand everything about a living being and our limited knowledge of humans if we can't even understand exactly the basic force or the Chinese would call it chi and the, the Indians would call it prana. If we don't understand that sufficiently to be able to capture, harness, and utilize it, well, of course we don't understand everything. But that doesn't really matter because we do know what makes a plant grow healthy. And we can take a look at a head of lettuce grown in an aquaponics system, and it exudes health. And our, our knowledge of, of the fact that something's good for us, you can feel it when you look at something like a lettuce plant, which generally is not something like a birthday cake or something like that that has that sugar craving. We just look at it, it's very appealing to us. Or a tomato, and it's nicely red, and it, the, 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 you know, a tomato could be the same. They're both the same shade of red, but if one's hanging on a, a vine that's light green, like it's not doing very well, and the other's on a dark, lush green vine, we're going to be more appealed by the one that has the dark, lush green vine because we have an innate intelligence that tells us that that is a food substance, that that is good for us, that we can recognize quality food. So that's pretty much why I'm just not worried about it. It's a long way around to getting there. I'm not really worried about... Is the tomato from the aquaponic system on par with the tomato from uh, the organic humus? And then the last bit of substance is what we do understand is that we don't grow plants uh, in soil. Okay, We grow plants in between soil. So The root of a plant doesn't go through a particle of soil. It grows in between many particles of soil. And the plant doesn't really use the soil for anything other than holding water and to receive nutrient. The structure of the soil itself is just simply a medium that, that the plant attaches itself to. And all of the good stuff comes from pulling away minerals and pulling away nutrients. And that the way that soil gets built is by the decaying of organic matter. Well, what the fish are is a source of decaying organic matter. So we have the same type of system. Instead of oak leaves and, and, and straw rotting, to create organic matter, fish are consuming a high-protein source, converting it, utilizing a portion of the energy, excreting it is urea and, 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 and poop. We'll just call it fish poop, right? And that is being then decayed further, converted into nit from nitrite to nitrate, uh, from nitrate to nitrite, and then and utilized by the plant. So it makes perfect sense that the systems are actually very, very similar. Best answer I can give you to a very complex question. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, it's Jake from Milwaukee. I got a topic of discussion and a question. First of all, after going through three years of waking up to the crazy world we live in by becoming obsessed with listening to guys like Alex Jones or Alan Watt, using this information to alienate nearly everyone around me, I've come to the realization that the events of the world seem to be scientifically designed to get a negative reaction from a person and that we all be better off ignoring politics concentrating on things you can actually affect in a positive way. I feel as though guys like you and Mike Reynolds are at the forefront of a larger movement that is going to use new and rediscovered technology to move society off-grid and into a new era of peace, freedom, and self-reliance, which combines the high-tech of energy and communications with the low-tech of growing food and raising kids. Uh, as far as my question, uh, being a northerner, 
Everyone up here thinks that the South is absolutely infested with deadly bees, poisonous snakes, and spiders. My wife and I are looking at acreage southeast of Little Rock, and I'm hoping you can talk about the implications of living around these types of critters. Thanks for the great podcast. Well, first, thanks for the really, really high praise and kind words, and I hope I can live up to a portion of it. I think maybe you're setting the bar higher for me than than what my impact really is. I say, you know, I do the best I can with the show. I'm just a guy trying to scream a message of sanity into a world of insanity. But there is actually a political bent to what I do, and I think it's important that people understand it. And I, I agree with you about not really discussing politics ad infinitum because it, it just doesn't go anywhere, and that's why I do what I do now. But my lifestyle, my show, the way I choose to live and the way that I suggest that other people live is libertarianism in action. Uh, I realize that political libertarianism as a party is something that the, the country's not ready for yet. Um, and it's because people can't look and see how it works. Uh, they can look and see how welfare works, and they can look and see how turning welfare off works. But uh, having no welfare, but having people that have individual responsibility to take care of themselves together, I haven't seen that yet. Uh, they can see what the consequences of, of poor actions are, and they can see what the rewards of, of positive actions are. But having a person whose negative actions only impacts them, we haven't done that yet. So, uh, that's, you know, I think that the only thing we can do if we want to spread a libertarian ideal is stop trying to do it at the ballot box because the country's not ready for it yet. And we have to do it on our own, and that's by the way that we live. So I try to live as liberty-oriented as I can, and I look at it this way. I don't need the government to tell me that I'm free. And if my rights are encroached on, I will change my situation to further my rights. And I don't ask. I don't ask, is it okay? I don't ask, please, can you do this for me? I just freaking do it. And if I go too far, then someone will tell me I'm in danger of, you know, being incarcerated for it or something. And I have to make a decision at that point. Do I back off or do I keep going? And in most cases, if I think there's a legitimate risk, I would back off for now. I don't want to be incarcerated. I like, you know, I don't get free by being locked up. So there's certain things that I don't think I should have to do, like pay income taxes, uh, but I'm going to do it because I have to. Um, now, if I can ever get to a point where I don't have to, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to feel guilty about it. So, I mean, that's kind of the, the whole way that, that, that I, I've come at this from living this free, independent way and saying that if we want to spread that ideal into political circles, we won't do it by uh, arguing with people and things like that. We'll do it by doing it. And, and things like figuring out how to make our own fuel. Uh, and things like figuring out how to grow our own food. If we do that long enough and there becomes a large enough group of us that everybody else turns and looks at it and goes... Well, this gerbil wheel that I'm on sucks. Those people over there are smarter than me. I want to be like them. So that's kind of the way that I've taken this approach. And I might not live long enough to see enough uh, terminal velocity uh, meet that market pl meet that place for it to really happen. And if not, I don't care. I'm, I'm fine with being one of the early pioneers into it. And I think there's there's not just me. There's millions of us doing this right now. We're all doing it together. And it's going to take hundreds of millions of us, though, to make it really happen. So thanks for that. Now, on your question with the, with the South, I think that some people don't get it. Uh, that, that, 
It's always more dangerous somewhere else, and there's always a bigger danger somewhere else, and there's a bigger snake in this country, and a meaner snake in that country, and a, a meaner spider here and there. Uh, the reality is flat out that there are, like the spiders, there are two venomous spiders uh, in North America. And there's actually one more that can be really nasty, but I can't remember what it's called, but it's like from the Pacific Northwest in Oregon, and it's not venomous. It causes an infection if it bites, and, and you don't want that sucker, but we don't have them in Arkansas. Uh, but it's brown recluse and, uh, and uh, black widow. And there's plenty of those in, in you know Northeast. Uh, I tell you flat out. Uh, there are snakes down here. There's snakes up there. When I was a kid one time, I was actually bit once by a copperhead fishing, uh, and had to go to the hospital for that. And there was another time I wasn't bit, but I was up in the, 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 the Pennsylvania mountains, and all of a sudden I heard that, that, that sound. No one wants to hear that rattle. Uh, and just a light buzzing of that rattle. But I know what it is, and I look, and just a few feet in front of me, curled up in a little rock crevice, is a, a ra rather small timber rattler. And then I just looked and thought about the time of the year and realized what I was looking at and then started to look around me. And as soon as I started looking for it, almost like they were materializing out of one of them paintings you stare at, it turns into a picture. There were timber rattlers everywhere. There had to be a hundred of them uh, within an acre. And it was, a, a you know, the early spring breeding of these timber rattlers. They congregate like this right when they come out of brumation. Um, so those dangers are there. Now, The reason I ran across those timber rattlers is I was out in a place where there's timber rattlers. Uh, you could have acreage in Arkansas and you're not going to see anything like that ever, ever, ever happen. Um, I don't think that there's much more dangerous about the South than there is about the North from that type of a, a standpoint. What we do have is everything grows faster here, so we have bigger stuff. Um, so that's good when you're a fisherman because we got bigger bass. Uh, so there's, you know, there are places, like there's places here, uh, there's a place here called Joe Pool Lake that I fish at a lot, and you don't see a lot of snakes there, but I know some back coves and places where the one creek comes into it, and I can take you back in that creek, especially this time of year, and I can show you literally 200 snakes in less than an hour. Uh, but they're a green water snake, they're not venomous. But you'd have to go there... To experience that. And, and I, I, you can sit in my backyard for days and you're never going to see anything like that. So it, it, it's just not, whoever these people are that have this imagery that if you go to Arkansas or Texas or anything, we're just crawling with this stuff. Um, it just isn't the case. The bees you mentioned, I imagine you're thinking about the encroachment of Africanized honeybees. Um, I've never seen any. Texas. Arkansas, never seen a single one that I was able to identify. Now, I'm not saying they're not here because we know they are. They're migrating throughout the country. Eventually, they'll be up north as well. But they're not the threat that people seem to believe they are. And they're only a threat when they're in swarm status or when their, their nests are, are disturbed. And then they become very, very aggressive. Uh, but the reality is that the same bee species that created this, the African honeybee, is used to produce honey in Africa. It's this, this hybrid, and I, I just don't think that's a reason to not move to the south. I don't think that there is a compelling reason uh, to not move to the south because of animal life. And I just think maybe the best thing you could do, take a trip. Take a week-long holiday and come explore the area you're considering moving to, and that'll probably alleviate those those issues 100% for you anyway. Um, best I can do for you, man, but please come on down. 
And uh, if you, you, you come down southwest of Little Rock, man, you're in my backyard. So look me up when you get there, and I'll be happy to have you up to the homestead and show you around and uh, drink a beer with you. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is John calling from Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I just wanted to say that right now one of the best ways to find silver under spot prices is actually collector sets or mint sets from the local pawn shop. A lot of these sets were bought by the pawn shop when silver was at 20 bucks per ounce or even cheaper. They slapped a price tag of $15 and $20 on them, put them on the shelf, and forgot they were there. Now, with the price of silver being $34 to $35 per ounce, a pre-64 mint set containing a half dollar, quarter, dime, nickel, and penny is worth around $21. Twelve from the half, six from the quarter, and two fifty from the dime. I recently picked up an eight decades of Washington quarters for 20 bucks. There were eight quarters in the set, four of which were pre-64, so I saved about $4 compared to melt prices. Anyways, check out your local pawn shops. See if you get, see if you get lucky. Thanks for your spell. Well, it's definitely worth doing. I mean, it might be worth taking a Saturday or a Sunday and driving around every pawn shop in your town and seeing if you can find any, because if you can find that, buy every single scrap of it you can get, because you could literally go from the pawn shop to any kind of silver dealer and sell it for a round spot price and, and make a profit in the day just from picking it up or put the silver aside and save it. I will say this, though. I, I completely agree with the last thing you said, good luck, uh, because it's the dumb pawn shop owner that sells silver without knowing what he has because um, that pawn shop owner could take all that stuff down to the silver dealer himself and uh, do that I, and I would say one more thing some pawn shops are kind of specialist in gold and silver you know like gold silver jewelry type ones are probably not the ones to check for this uh, they're going to be the ones that are a little bit more informed of what they're doing great tip uh, and it's also I'll tell you this I found some websites They're selling collector sets that way. Uh, they just haven't updated their catalogs. You know, they have a whole crap ton of stuff in inventory, and they have these uh, pre-64 mint sets, and some of the, and, and better than that, a lot of times it's like the uh, the new quarter sets and all. There were silver-proof versions of those, so there are new items in the inventory, relatively new. You know, they've been in there maybe two, three years. They were picked up from the mint directly or from a wholesaler. And uh, sometimes, especially on the websites that are not, um, well-maintained looking sites, the ones that kind of look like somebody had their, uh, their brother or their, their kid put the site together for them. You can find some pretty good stuff. I bought, it was about $200 that I spent on, on stuff just like what you're describing, uh, from a certain website that I won't give away because if I can find anything else there, I'm buying it. Uh, and I don't want to flood this guy out by giving away his mistake on the air. I don't think that'd be right. Uh, but it was about $200 worth of stuff I paid for. And I got about $700 in silver melt value. And I thought that was just killer. And uh, I actually didn't think it would work. I figured I'd put the order in and he'd cancel the order and say, dude, my pricing's out of date. But send all the stuff just as promised. So it's out there. Go look for it. Great call. Great tip. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is AJ from Northwest Indiana. Uh, really appreciate your podcast. And the comment would be that... I appreciate the type of tone that your show takes in that uh, where everybody kind of has the sense that uh, things are going to change here, uh, possibly irrevoc irrevocably in the future. Uh, nobody knows when, nobody knows why, nobody can really put a button on it. But 
there's some folks that that scares. There's some folks that uh, it causes concern. They believe they need to prepare for it, which is which is appropriate. But uh, I would like to encourage everybody to just look at it from the standpoint of uh, there's ways to position yourself during changes that are uh, that are good for you. Um, it might not be comfortable, but it's not always good for you to be comfortable. Um, it's not definitely not good for me to be comfortable. I get fat and lazy. But to look at it as an opportunity uh, to try to position your family and your mindset and your your work ethic uh, in such a way that as to be in front of it and uh, kind of find a way to have some fun with it. And I really believe the tone of your show uh, lends itself towards that. And uh, that's hugely uh, an optimism improver for me. And uh, just thank you so much. Have a good one. Bye. Well, I completely agree with your advice, and again, thank you. This seems more like a compliment show than a question show. Thank you, everybody that said nice things to me both today on on the on the air and uh, all the stuff that comes in an email and stuff like that. It's really humbling. But I, I agree that we we really need to look at this. Is that the reason there's so much interest in prepping right now is we're in a, on a planetary level change on, on so many things with water, with food, and with energy, and those three things alone then splinter off to thousands of other things. And business as usual won't continue. Things will have to change. That doesn't mean that we're going to go to the dark ages. For God's sakes, I, I, I never, I hate it when people start thinking that way. What it does mean is that there's going to be massive change. And, you know, I don't want people, remember the old Wayne's World gig? You know, remember Wayne's World from Saturday Night Live, We Fear Change? I don't want people taking that approach. There was a reason that was funny. You know, there was a reason that was funny is because it's not behaving normally. Change should be anticipated and embraced. Now, some of the change sucks, just like Caller said. You know, it might be uh, uncomfortable, but it's not necessarily good to be comfortable all the time. People that are always comfortable are lazy and slothful and fat and eating Cheetos and playing video games. And, and if you have a kid like that, eventually you have to make them uncomfortable to get them to go out and change their life. So it can either be a lack of comfort or a removal of comfort that makes us personally change or change that creates uncomfort so that we will change. And I do think there's tremendous things to be excited about in our future. I think there's tremendous things to be concerned about in our future. I'm concerned, even though I don't believe in man-made global warming, you bet your ass I'm concerned about climate change because the climate changes and sometimes we're not ready for it. You know, perfect example was the Little Ice Age, which we didn't get out of until the 1800s, for God's sakes. They used to have carnivals on the River Thames in London because the river froze solid. It doesn't do that anymore. The warming may not all be bad. But yeah, changes, droughts, things like that. Um, genetically modified crops scare the hell out of me. The concept of a pandemic someday going global scares me. doesn't scare me and, and disempower me. It scares me as in that it concerns me, and I know I have to be prepared for it. The fact that we're depleting our freshwater resources for global agriculture, it, it concerns me. The population is, is, is slated to grow to 8 billion, and we don't really know how we're going to take care of another 1 plus billion people. Concerns me. The, the, the country going broke, the states going broke, the cities going broke in this nation. Concerns me. The fact that sooner or later there has to be default, and, and the consequences of that concern me. But I also look and go, what a beautiful time to be alive. What an amazing time to be alive. And we have all the knowledge we need 
to make ourselves self-sufficient enough to position ourselves, as the caller here said, to take advantage of this change when it comes. Thanks for that call. I really appreciate it. And hopefully that's the tone that everybody gets on the show. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Dan from the uh, frozen tundra of Minnesota. Calling about uh, rain barrels. Uh, bought two rain barrels. I was getting ready to start hooking them up here in uh, Minnesota once the uh, snow melted. By the way, we still got over a foot of snow in the middle of March. Uh, that's on the ground. Wanted to know what your thoughts and feelings are about using that water on my uh, herbs and vegetables from asphalt shingles. Uh, I bought these rain barrels and I started researching it and like some people are saying, oh boy, if you got asphalt uh, shingles, don't use that water on your herbs or anything that you're going to eat, uh, your vegetables and stuff. And some are saying that it's okay. Just want to know what your thoughts were on that. Thanks very much. Great shows. I've uh, really appreciated listening to your uh, podcast the last six months. So keep up the good work. Thank you. If you're going to drink it, I care. If you're going to put it in your garden, I don't. It's that simple. Now, if you're really concerned about it, what you can do is rig up a system. So what you have is basically a balance-based system. There's a lot of different ways to do this. You can look it up on YouTube, which will allow, let's say, the first 10 gallons of water to fill up a couple, a five-gallon container or 10-gallon container. And when that fills, it'll it'll drop down by a counterweight and open up a path to your main rain barrel. If you want to do that, you can. And if you're saving water for drinking use, it's probably a good idea. To all these people that are so concerned about the water that comes off your roof being used for irrigation, I have to ask you this. How much water comes off your roof and runs through your yard and waters your trees and your garden every single time that it rains? So every single time that it rains, all of that water that comes off your roof ends up in your back in your front yard sooner or later, unless you have some kind of French drain system taking it away, which is really dumb because it's all great irrigation water. Um, I'll tell you that the water that comes off your, sh- your shingles off your roof is probably better for watering your plants than the water that comes out of your sink. So, again, I'm not worrying about it unless I'm, I'm collecting that water for use uh, for... Uh, for, for drinking. And if you wanted to come up with a really simple solution uh, for the water harvesting, as long as you're going to be around your house most of the time, you can put just a little bypass valve on one of your downspouts that you're using for collecting water and keep it turned so the water doesn't go into the rain barrel. And uh, when it starts raining, uh, maybe, you know, t- 10 minutes into the rainstorm, just go out there and switch the valve over so it does go into your barrel. Uh, because rain barrels are woefully inadequate for collecting the rainfall from even a modest rain on an average-sized roof. Uh, you're talking thousands and thousands of gallons, and with barrels, maybe you're collecting a big one. You're collecting 100 gallons a pop, so 200 gallons off your roof. So it's not like it's critical that you uh, that you get every single drop or anything. So you could simply create any kind of a cutoff system that you wanted and manually switch it over after a rain fell for a while. Or again, you could use the the weight of the water collected to rig up some type of counterbalance. But personally, this is a personal thing. I'm not going to fault you for worrying about it with irrigation if you want to do that. But personally... I don't worry about that one bit. I have so many things that I am more concerned with than the fact that some of the water that ran off my roof. Now, the reason for the counterbalance system is obviously the first water is going to bring down the most crap that's up there. And it's really less about the asphalt shingles, but things like 
bird poo and squirrel poo and other things that accumulate up there on the roof, allowing that to be washed out before you collect the water. Again, if I'm drinking the water, I, I care. But as far as things like the squirrel went up there and took a dump, a squirrel probably took plenty of dumps in my garden while he was burying acorns in it and digging up my lettuce plants anyway. Just not something I'm going to personally worry about. But I get the question. I understand it. That's how you deal with it if it concerns you. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up today. Thanks, folks. This is a great group of questions. I really appreciate everybody that listens to the show. I really appreciate everybody that's, that, that shares the show with others. Um, I'll tell you what, every single person that listens to this show matters to me. I may not agree with everybody all the time. Sometimes we might even get in some heated discussions. But it doesn't mean that I don't value every single listener out there. I really do. Um, there might be even times when I tell you to go away, I don't want to talk to you anymore. But I still value you. And, and hopefully everybody understands that. Because sometimes, with, with you know, we're all, whether we want to admit it or not, everybody listens to this show as a libertarian banner. You wouldn't be able to stand it for more than three or four episodes. Uh, and libertarians are going to argue over, they can agree with 99% of the thing, but they're going to find the one or two things that they have that they're going to argue about, and that's okay. That means that we're free spirit, independent thinking people. Uh, and I think the biggest arguments are when one person can't accept the other person just isn't going to see it their way. And sometimes you're not going to see it my way, and sometimes I'm not going to see it your way. And I think everybody's cool as long as we just let it be when that happens. Uh, the other thing I want to tell you guys, it's important to me. I get emails sometimes that say things like, I agree with everything you say. I, I haven't found anything yet that I... Don't put that voodoo on me. Uh, don't do that to me because you're going to get mad at me someday. You're going to get really, really pissed off at me someday. Every single listener, if you listen long enough, I'm going to say something you don't like. And all I'm saying is don't let that turn you away from the show. I guarantee you if you talk long enough and I listen to you long enough, if you talk for an hour a day... Five days a week and I just listen to you, you're going to say something's going to piss me off. So when that happens, just understand that we're going to have places we disagree. And that's okay. And I want you to disagree with me. You may disagree with me till the cows come home and give me a million reasons why, and I might still tell you, I don't care, you're wrong. It doesn't mean I don't appreciate the fact that you disagree. Now, those are two very different things. I don't have to agree with you to respect you. And that's how I hope this show comes across in total. And I hope when you're having conversations with your friends and you disagree on certain things, you take the same approach. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Revolution is you.